Hello and welcome to the premiere episode of the Chainbreaker podcast. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with two prolific prosecutors in the state of Maryland. Melissa Hopmeyer and Catherine Marsh are quite the dynamic duo. Together, these women have partnered both in an official capacity as the chief and assistant chief of the Special Victims and Family Violence Unit in the Prince George's State's Attorney's Office and unofficially as the co-founders of Right Response Consulting. They're also co-hosts of the No Gray Zone podcast. Join us for an insightful and enlightening conversation. Welcome to the show, Melissa and Catherine. It's so great to have you on here. How are you both doing? We are good. Thanks for having us. Doing great. Thank you so much. We're very excited for your podcast. It's <laughs> great. Thanks so much. So, I mean, I just shared the amazing work and and the titles that you two have. Um, it's it's so impressive and so inspiring. Can you both share with us about how you got into doing this work and decided to dedicate essentially your life to fighting for human trafficking and domestic violence survivors, among others? Melissa, you can go first. Sure. Uh, thanks. So, you know, um, I think as long as I can remember, I have wanted to be a prosecutor. I have this um, picture um, a, that I came in my office that I drew when I was in second grade. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, my parents kind of raised me to um, believe in service to others, which is, I think, something that prosecutors do. And, um, you know, I, I just have always been um, found that, you know, I think that women need to help other women. And I know that, you know, violence against women is just something that has always um, kind of stuck with me. I had, um, growing up, I had an aunt who, um, it was ruled a suicide, but many people in my family believed that she was um, murdered by her abusive husband. Um, and it's something that's always kind of stuck with me. Um, and knowing that, you know, wanting to give back as part of my career, um, it kind of led me in that direction. I always volunteered with, you know, shelters, um, domestic violence shelters throughout college. Um, my sorority, that was one of our um, big, big um, events every year was helping out at my sister's place in DC. Um, and I just really kind of was drawn to the work. Um, and I just, it kind of always had a really important place in my heart. And so it's just something that I've always wanted to do when I was in law school. I was in the domestic violence clinic um, because I do think that uh, as women, we have we have the best tools to help other women move forward. And so it's just something that's been really important to me throughout my life. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that quote. <laughs> As women, we have the best tools to help other women, essentially. It's, it's really important to lift each other up. And I think we're in the best position to do so. Um, Catherine, how about yourself? Okay, so mine waited until third grade before I decided I was going to be an attorney. Melissa beat <laughs> me by a year. I think in second grade, I was just going to be an actress. Uh, but, you know, I grew up where my dad was in the Air Force and he was a staff judge advocate. And so he did defense work. He did prosecution work. And I got to see that growing up. And when I was in college, I did internships with both the public defender's office and the U.S. attorney's office. And the division I was in with the U.S. attorney's office was actually their death penalty unit. So dealing with those cases and specifically working with the victim's family members. And at that point I was like, you know, prosecution is the only way to go for me. Just 
talking to families who, you know, it's the 10th year and they're being told there's an appeal on their case and, you know, they're just trying to be strong and, and keep getting through it because you, you think the trial's the end and it's really not. And so just being able to see that as a prosecutor and working with victims, you do stay in their lives and try to assist through the whole thing. I came into domestic violence kind of in the circular route because I started with child abuse and sexual assault. I had always worked with children in after school programs and uh, growing up and all through college. And so child abuse was where I wanted to do my focus and child abuse and sexual assault go hand in hand. And then when you have your special victims units, when they are specialized like that, domestic violence is a part of it. And so the domestic violence came, kind of came on the tail end of child abuse and sexual assault. Wow, that's so great. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Catherine. And thank you so much, Melissa, as well, for sharing your story. Uh, you two were quite the precocious kids and definitely have continued to do great work in these fields as adults. So very, very inspirational. Thanks so much for your service. I'm going to go right ahead and jump in. According to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, Maryland ranked fourth among the top states per capita in trafficking cases in 2018, trailing big states like Nevada, California, and Ohio. This may seem shocking to our listeners, and it certainly did to me, because Maryland is not one of those states where you imagine human trafficking, of all things, being a big issue. So can you explain to us, Melissa, what the statistic actually means and how it actually plays out in practice? It really is a shocking statistic, I think. And if you're not kind of um, practicing in this area or, you know, whether practicing in the law or a, a service provider, it, you wouldn't really know it. But we do have um, in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area, you know, a lot of um, activities that would lend itself to human trafficking. You know, we have casinos now. We have a lot of major airports. Um, we have the, you know, the federal government um, here. And I know people don't want to hear it, but, you know, those types of um those types of jobs, those types of things lend themselves to trafficking. Um, and frankly, how it plays out um, in, in Maryland is that we have more human trafficking cases than we have investigators to investigate it and prosecutors to prosecute it. Um, and so it, it can seem like an uphill battle to combat it because it always feels like you're playing catch up. Uh, there's always another case behind it. And it, it sometimes can feel like the traffickers are two, head, two steps ahead of you because these are these are very... Um, savvy, uh, very smart individuals who could probably do very much good if they weren't <laughs> traffickers. Um, mm -hmm. But that being said, you know, what it does provide us as state prosecutors is the opportunity to work with our federal partners on a lot of cases. Um, and that can give us a lot of additional resources and it can um, ensure that these traffickers are held accountable because the, the federal trafficking laws can sometimes be a little bit more um, stringent than our state laws. And so while it can seem overwhelming, you know, what, what we have done is taken a bad situation and partnered with our federal partners, as well as our, uh, the local jurisdictions in DC and Virginia, and really kind of worked together to try to crack down on trafficking in our area. And, you know, Melissa raised a really good point with working with our federal partners. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Maryland has the most indicted cases for human trafficking in the country. And I think what's also important to note, as Melissa indicated, we have a lot of airports. We have a huge international uh, business and community where people just fly in for a weekend or out. And that lends itself to human trafficking, as does professional sports. 
-hmm. And this isn't to say the athletes, but the fact that we have baseball teams, basketball teams, and football teams, and people come in for sporting events and are here just for the sporting event and to leave again, that's another reason why human trafficking follows sports activities. And the NFL has actually been tracking this and they now sponsor grants to help with the fight against human trafficking. They do a huge push if you pay attention during the Super Bowl now for commercials and ads and ways to stop human trafficking. So there's all of that, which leads to why Maryland is so high, Mm -hmm. but also the education that's now starting to come with it and uh, the use of all of our partners. Understood. Very interesting. Thanks so much for explaining that to us, Melissa. Catherine, how does everything that Melissa just explained translate to Prince George's County specifically? Is human trafficking a big issue within the county itself? Yes. And I think it's important to understand and emphasize that human trafficking is a problem everywhere. Right. And and I don't want people to think because Maryland's number four, that it's not just as big in some other state as well. Human trafficking can happen anywhere. One of the things that Melissa and I see quite often, which most people don't even contemplate, but especially in Prince George's County that we see, is that human trafficking happens right out of the victim and survivor's bedroom, right out of their home. And while yes, Prince George's County has brothels, it has massage parlors, it has other places where human trafficking occurs and that we generally think of when we look at TV shows or the news, what we see a lot is our survivors who are being just trafficked out of their home, especially our minor victims. And it's really important to emphasize that the most common age for traffickers to try to get their victims in is 12 to 14. It's starting in middle school, and we need to make sure that all of our parents are educated, that teachers and school administrators are educated on the signs and symptoms, because that's the way we're going to be able to effectively slow down trafficking, is if we can stop, you know, the recruitment in from our minors. Wow, those are pretty shocking statistics, really. Um The fact that 12 to 14 year olds are the average age for human trafficking victims, the fact that it's so prevalent in the United States, in the state of Maryland itself, in the the District of Columbia, and the fact that there are so many different forms that human trafficking can take and so many different platforms on which it can occur. Very interesting and shocking, really. Well, Melissa and Catherine happen to serve on the human trafficking task forces for the state of Maryland and for Prince George's County, which are two separate task forces from my understanding. Can you both share with us how these task forces came about and really what they're designed to achieve? Sure. So I'll talk about the Prince George's County Human um, Trafficking Task Force. And it really came about a few years ago, um, back when the current county executive, Angela Alsa Brooks, was the state's attorney in Prince George's County, and Rashern Baker was the the county executive at the time. And both of those um, individuals saw that there really was a need um, for all Prince George's County agencies, not just the state attorney's office, not just the police department, but social services, our service providers, the Family Justice Center, although it was just getting started back then, Um, for all of us to get together and talk and communicate about cases, about trends in the community, about trends um, in in the the schools, 
um, so that we could effectively not only prosecute those cases, but help our survivors and help our families um, with services. Because what we what we knew was that everybody was working on the problem, but we weren't talking to each other. Um, and honestly, as with everything, um, when you communicate, things get better. Um, and so it's it's a place where we can all get together. We all um, you know we all have people who serve as our our um, our. I guess, spokespersons, for lack of a better word. Um, and we, we get together, um, you know, monthly and quarterly, depending on, you know, the, the different subgroups to talk about um, our cases on the, on the law enforcement side. We talk about trends in the area. We talk about um, what services or trainings that we can provide. And those are the, some of the things that we do. You know, our mm-hmm. human trafficking team has gone out to the MGM casino and provided trainings on how to spot human trafficking to um, the service workers there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have done uh, trainings in schools and it's really about, uh, you know, education and communication so that we can effectively uh, combat human trafficking in the county. Mm-hmm. And so I'll talk about the uh, Maryland Human Trafficking Task Force Law Enforcement Committee. So it's a little different because it is concentrating on investigators, prosecutors, and victim advocates. It's not all the other Uh, social services that go in to the task force like Prince George's County. So, but it has a lot of the same goals. So as Melissa mentioned, um, identifying trends, that's a big part because we want to make sure that everybody is on the same page. The Maryland Human Trafficking Task Force for the law enforcement is our federal partners, are all of the different state jurisdictions. So we have all the different counties represented because Maryland is so small, you can you know, traffic somebody through four counties and a federal jurisdiction all within, you know, a couple of hours. And so a lot of times it's important for us to make sure we're deconflicting cases. So if I have a case in Prince George's County, but somebody else is investigating it in Montgomery County, we need to make sure we're all on the same page so we're not messing up somebody's investigation. The other part that's really important is the Law Enforcement Task Force Committee works together to help address Maryland laws, to help um, make them stricter with regard to human trafficking, to help pass laws to aid survivors. So we do a lot of legislation work as well. And then finally we do training and it's on a statewide basis. So just last week, the task force hosted a training with a human trafficking investigator out of Texas. They have a ton of cases going through the one interstate there. And they came out and were showing us some of the new apps and some of the new tech that they use. So we can see if we want to bring that in as well. And so it kind of is a wraparound uh, training, deconfliction, and then working on legislation together. Wow, fantastic. That's really great. So honestly, just getting to the basics, how exactly in your experiences, have you seen human trafficking play out? Who are the typical actors, you know, who are the vulnerable population? And, you know, because we just hear uh, just a lot of people look at it as such a a, a macro um, idea, you know, human trafficking. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, these are things that are going on right under our noses every day. And so, like, how does this actually play out? So I'll, I'll take some of the victim vulnerabilities. And Melissa, if you want to address some of the typical uh, traffickers, maybe we can give you an idea that way. As indicated, you know, the, the most common age for recruitment is 12 to 14. So they're looking for our young people. They're looking for people they believe are vulnerable. 
somebody that they can work on, you know, isolationism and, and gaslighting. And so oftentimes they'll establish relationships online through social media, uh, through texting to get that vulnerable person to trust them. And so they'll look for people who might be uh, making complaints on social media. Their family might be going through a divorce. They may have moved. They may not have a strong friend support. They also look for individuals who have exhibit signs of anxiety or post-traumatic stress. Maybe they've been physically or sexually abused themselves. Uh, they'll look for people who might be struggling with a substance abuse program, anything that shows a victim vulnerability. One of the things we do know is there's also a correlation with our victims who are in the foster care system. You know, there've been several studies to show that about 60% of our minor victims of human trafficking are in the foster care system. And that's not because they're being trafficked by foster parents. I, I don't want to uh, indicate that we have lots of amazing foster parents, but it's because they highlight those vulnerabilities. And, mm -hmm. you know, so often our, our foster children are the ones who, even if, you know, their family member or parent was in the wrong, they're the one who has to move homes. They're the ones who have to switch schools. They have to find a whole new friend network. And so the one person they can take with them from place to place is the person on the opposite side of the computer screen or the phone. And so they can establish that trust with yeah. our, our vulnerable minors and get them to walk out of the door on their own, to meet them somewhere, to establish that trust bond. So now when they say, hey, look, I need you to help me out. I, I'm short on rent or something. Will you do this to help me out? Our, our, our vulnerable victim is, of course, going to help them out because it's the one person they can rely on right now. Right. And so, yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, sorry about that. I, I, de yeah, def I mean, Catherine is absolutely right. And I, I also just want to highlight that they that traffickers also, um, you know, other vulnerable populations like, you know, uh, uh, undocumented workers, LGBTQ plus um, population, people with addiction or other people that they really um, will uh, will target because, um, I think a, a big part of human trafficking that plays into sexual assault, um, they kind of go hand in hand together because uh, I think human trafficking kind of relies on the rape culture part of our society. Um, and so they look out for people who they know that maybe law enforcement or prosecutors or a jury won't believe. And so they're targeting people who have generally been, you know, underrepresented as sexual assault victims. Um, because they haven't been believed before. And so they, they use that. And I think that just ties into the typical trafficker, if there is one, there is not. I've, you know, I've seen, um, you know, people who carry on full-time, you know, very high level jobs um, who are, who are trafficking. And I've seen, you know, the, the, the caricature of the pimp that you see on TV and I've seen everything kind of in between. And I think Catherine would probably say the same thing. I think that the one thing I can say that is typical uh, amongst all of them is that they are um, very charismatic um, and they are um, narcissistic and they um, they know how to manipulate. They're master manipulators. Um, they can, you know, wrap people around their fingers. Um, like Catherine said, they, they prey on people who 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 need that um, connection or who are looking for that connection. Um, and then they they use it to their advantage. Um, and, you know, we see it time and time again, there's like, oh, so a lot of times we'll see something like Stockholm syndrome, where our, our yeah. survivors um, think that their, their traffickers are, you know, helping them, 
or that they actually love them. And it makes it very difficult, um, you know, to separate themselves from the situation and to realize um, what, what they've, what they've been through. Yeah. Wow. And so when survivors are actually discovered, finally discovered and, and freed, um, what kind of rehabilitation? I mean, I mean, this is like, you know, very high level manipulation and, you know, trauma and everything that you just described. How, what, what is the state of Maryland and PG County um, um, and just how, how do they address the issue of trying to get them back, you know, to society, to, to functioning as, as normal individuals? I mean, I don't know what normal is really, but, you know, just kind of rehabilitating them back to a, a state of, of stability, I guess. Um, and, and what other assistance does um, just Maryland have as a whole for these survivors? You know, what I was, will say is that in Prince George's County, we are so privileged to work with some amazing community partners that are really, really dedicated to the rehabilitation and the reentry of our survivors. And we work in really close partnership with all of them, you know, that we don't do an investigation um, without having, you know, their input into um, the services that our survivors need. Um, and we work with Courtney's House, the University of Maryland Safe Center. We work with Amara Legal. Uh, we work with MCASA. Um, and then their subsidiary, El Sally, which is the Sexual Assault Legal Institute. And then, of course, we can't do our jobs without our amazing Family Justice Center in Prince George's County. Um, we're so lucky to have it. Um, they are such an amazing resource. And they all of these all of these community partners provide job training. We also work with Catholic Charities. I don't want to forget them because um, they provide some really excellent um, uh, partnerships as well. But um, they provide job, you know, job training and job readiness for our survivors. They provide them with housing, um, rehabilitative services. They uh, connect them with social services. They will help them sign up for social services. They, you know, connect them with counseling um, in both an individual capacity and group counseling. And, um, you know, they, they are really there for us. A lot of times, um, even if we're doing, you know, a recovery effort, they'll be there with us on the front lines to help, um, you know, help our survivors. And we tell all of our survivors, you know, you don't necessarily have to work. We would love you to work with us on the criminal end, but really the important part for us is making sure that we're, 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 we're rescuing them and then we're connecting them with services so that they don't re-enter, you know, the life. Um, and, and that's really just the number one. I don't know if Catherine thinks I, I probably did miss somebody. But, um. well, I was like, there are so many, but I think what you said last is the most important. If we don't have the wraparound services in place from the very beginning, the chance of the survivor returning to the trafficker is extremely high. And I know that sounds counterintuitive that you know, we see on the news all the time, you know, 40 people uh, freed from human trafficking or uh, found in a brothel. And, and, it, and it's not that simple. It's, it's not easy. And it, and it doesn't happen overnight because there is a trauma bond that has been formed with the survivor and the trafficker. There is, as Melissa described, Stockholm syndrome or gaslighting. And it is a true and realistic thing to the survivor. And it takes months or even years of counseling and treatment. And there should be no shame in that whatsoever. There should be no guilt for the survivor in that whatsoever, because that's what the trafficker does and relies on in order to keep the survivors basically under their thumb. And so all the partners that Melissa mentioned, Catholic Charities helps quite a bit with immigration 
work when we have that that needs to be done. And there are different advocates who help with expungement clinics. And but again, the Family Justice Center and Safe Centers and Courtney's House are, are probably our top three that the second we start with a survivor, we want them involved because, again, it's not easy that we don't break the trauma bond overnight. And our number one goal, do we want the trafficker in jail? Absolutely. But our number one goal mm -hmm. is to keep the survivor safe and help them establish a healthy lifestyle. Right. So you discussed um, expungement of records uh, for the survivors. Um, from my research, it looks like uh, it appears that survivors of human trafficking, unfortunately, um, and inevitably are involved in unlawful acts during the time that they are being trafficked. And so <clears throat> they may have criminal records. How has Maryland and PG um, worked to assist survivors once they are freed um, to get these records expunged? You talked briefly about that, but how does that actually, you know, work? Can you give just a, just a little bit more detail? So I want to explain that one part was, quite frankly, all of us had to be retrained. And when I say all of us, I mean law enforcement, prosecutors, and judges, because we had to change the mindset of it's a prostitute and some kind of voluntary act to, right. they are a trafficked individual and they are a survivor mm -hmm. of the criminal act being done upon them. So right. that didn't happen overnight in the criminal justice system either. So first, I, I quite honestly, it had to start with training. It had to start with re-education. And once we changed our mindset and could identify that survivors of trafficking were in fact survivors and not this prostitute concept that everyone had had before where they are the ones who should be locked up and they're the ones who should be charged for the act. With that came the understanding of, boy, we've screwed this up for years. And, you know, our survivors now have criminal records for prostitution, for uh, misdemeanor possession, uh, lots of times for uh, assault or domestic violence on their trafficker. And, and it came mm. from recognizing we'd been doing it wrong for so long and creating laws to allow the expungement of prostitution records, to allow the expungement of uh, minor uh, drug possession and even some of those second degree assaults. And I know Melissa could talk now about part of the big part is the huge training to make sure we're doing it right from the beginning. And that even if we get a victim who's been charged that on the prosecutor end, uh, we, we don't follow through on prosecution. I know Melissa does a ton of training on identifying the main offender. Yeah, and we and we have created in Prince George's County, a, uh, you know, a diversion program for um, prostitution cases. I don't like to use that word. Unfortunately, that's what the statute still calls it um, so that we don't um, put our survivors into the system um, because, uh, you know, they, they are survivors, they're not, you know, they shouldn't be treated as defendants. And it, and it really prevents them. What we've learned over time, I think Catherine is right, we've all had to retrain ourselves. But what we've learned over time is that when we were um, punishing them, we were just basically feeding in to the trafficker and, and keeping them in the system. Because once they have that prostitution conviction, the theft conviction, the drug conviction, it makes it so much more difficult for them to get jobs or um, kind of move on with their lives. You know, when, when somebody sees a prostitution conviction, we know what kind of goes through their mind. And so we really want to make sure that we're teaching our law enforcement, our prosecutors, that um, we should not be criminalizing this type of behavior. We should be helping these individuals get, um, get out of the life. 
Um, and so we do do a lot of training. I know that, you know, sometimes it is difficult with law enforcement. They've been trained a specific way and they, you know, a lot of them have been in, uh, you know, in law enforcement for years and years and years and times have changed and it's, it can make it difficult for them. And there are, I don't, there are a lot of really good uh, detectives who understand um, trafficking and understand survivors, but, you know, it's, it's a daily struggle, I think, for all of us. We all had to relearn um, and, and learn better. And we want the survivors to trust the system. And you can't expect a survivor of human trafficking to have any faith in the criminal justice system and that we're going to help them get away from their trafficker if they're the ones who are being punished for the acts. Hmm, very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Catherine. Very good points. As mentioned earlier, Catherine and Melissa are the legislative policy co-chairs for Prince George's County. They have some pretty, in my opinion, excellent bills in the pipeline, which are to be deliberated on in the next legislative session. Of note to me, when we discuss Catherine and Melissa, is the continuing course of action bill, which is actually a child abuse bill, but has a really interesting story behind it. Melissa, can you explain more about the bill and really the impetus for it? Sure. Um, so, you know, Maryland has a, a both a first and second degree child abuse statute. They're both felonies. Um, you know, there's differences, obviously, in penalties, but only first degree child abuse um, is considered a crime of violence, um, which we can get into that on a different podcast. <laughs> but um, what what the statute says right now is that we can only charge first degree child abuse um, if if the victim suffers serious bodily injury, which is defined as you know, the loss of the use of an organ or some sort of really major uh, injury. Mm -hmm. And what we were finding is that we were seeing a lot of cases where the where our victims were having multiple injuries. And I say multiple, I don't mean two or three, I mean, you know, dozens of injuries, in some cases, even hundreds of injuries, mm -hmm. but not one of those single injuries that the victim had rose to the level that we could charge the first degree. Mm -hmm. um, child abuse, because there was not serious bodily injury. There were burns, there were a couple of broken, you know, ribs, but nothing really rose to the level that we could make the first degree child abuse. But what was happening is that the doctors, and we have some amazing doctors at Children's National, were diagnosing these children with torture. Um, we were stuck with charging, you know, the lesser crime of second degree child abuse, which is not a crime of violence. Uh, and, and, you know, we didn't think that that served our victims or that it served the, the community. And I think, you know, what I think we've been talking and thinking about this bill. I know Catherine has, and she might have some more um, input for it for a while. But what really kind of turned it around is we had this case that came about from a human trafficking case. Um, there was a, an individual who was a trafficker. Um, he They were investigating him federally for trafficking women um, all over the DMV. He had um, a, a, he had a, a victim who had a young son. Um, and the trafficker uh, kept that young, that little boy, and he tortured him. Um, he deprived him of food. He would uh, burn him. He would use, a, we believe, a taser on him. He would put him underneath water so that, you know, um, to, to mimic drowning. Um, he kept him in a bathroom. Uh, he wouldn't change his diaper. I mean, he, he, he tortured this little boy. Um, and when the little boy was recovered and given to his grandma and taken to the, um, to the doctor, to the pediatrician, they noted all of these injuries, all of these healing injuries, all of these scars. But again, we couldn't make that first degree child abuse because not a single injury that he had rose to that level. 
and you know, I, we talked to the grandmother. I know Catherine was involved in the case, so she might have a little bit more. Um, and we, we were just kind of outraged by the fact that this little boy who suffers still to this day from PTSD, uh, you know, he couldn't get the real justice we thought he deserved. And so uh, Catherine worked with um, our legislature to draft this bill. And so I don't know if Catherine, you wanna kind of talk a little bit more about it. Sure, so I think Melissa summarized the bill pretty much why we wanna do it. So the bill itself is to just say, if there are three or more acts of child abuse, it's gonna raise it from a second degree child abuse to a first degree child abuse to get us that um, crime of violence for a first degree child abuse. Mm -hmm. We already have a continuing course of abuse if it's sexual abuse of a minor, but we've never addressed it for the physical abuse. And these, these victims need to have equality under the law and we need to do everything we can to protect them. And we are so lucky that we have such a champion in our legislature of uh, Delegate Vanessa Atterbury, who always takes on pretty much anything she can to do to help children and sexual assault survivors. She was um, behind getting the repeat sexual offender bill passed as well. So we have a champion with her and we're really thrilled with that. But, you know, part of it was talking to Delegate Atterbury about this case and and one other one that we had. And and she was like, it, it's clear as day. You know, this why is this even a question? Why is the law so far behind in providing this protection? Because this little boy, it started when he was nine months old. Mm. And, you know, and again, the trafficker kept the little boy in his home and would hold out to the victim of the trafficking. Basically, you want him to eat. You need to go out and work. You want, to, you want to be able to see him, you need to go out and work. And when this little boy was rescued because he, the trafficker was actually arrested and then eventually convicted by the federal jurisdiction for the human trafficking, we then got the child abuse component of it in Maryland. The, the child was not able to talk. He um, would only go and get into a corner of a room because that's all he'd been allowed to sleep in, either in on a bathroom floor where he'd be curled up because it was so cold or in a corner of a room. He would uh, basically have difficulties eating because he'd been starved for so long and only provided truly as a developing little boy, bread and milk. And that would be about all he would be allowed to be given. So the only good news is he's, of course, now with his grandmother, as Melissa mentioned, who has done amazing things and getting him into experts all over the D.C. area. He does have PTSD. He is now uh, five years old, um, actually six now, um, but he has cognitive learning delays as well. He has behavioral issues. It was really bad at first because he had no idea how to respond to anybody, how to interact with people. He's basically been treated worse than the dogs by this trafficker in his home. And so now he's surrounded by love and that's amazing. And he's now able to talk, which is amazing, but this isn't anything that's going to go away quick. And it's in, he's going to feel the effects of this for the rest of his life. And so this bill is going to speak for him and for so many other victims of torture who we have not been able to get proper justice for. Yeah. Wow. And so just to clarify on the bill itself, you're saying that, um, that if there's three or four acts of uh, child abuse, or you're saying three or four symptoms 
on the child. No, so body. it's so it's going to be which symptoms are actually generally signs of abuse. Uh, so it's an injury. So if there's three or more episodes of child abuse, and so for example, one case that I have, I have a victim who has about. 12 different rib fractures and the doctor can tell me that they're from at least three different time periods because of the healing is different. Mm -hmm. And so that would give me this continuing course. I have another child who has over 18 bite marks all over her body. It's another infant and it's from two different adults. Um, you can tell from the different sizes of the bite marks and we're not talking, you know, the pinch to the skin that goes away in five minutes. This is where it broke the skin and we can tell from the healing phases that these were also done at different time periods. So that would be covered. So we can finally get our, our most vulnerable victims who are being abused by someone in their home or a family member or somebody has authority over them, the proper voice, because it, it's really insulting to say you've been tortured and the most we can do for you is a second degree child abuse, which says, you just had an injury from somebody and no real long-term effects because Secondary child abuse can also cover somebody who, and I, I don't want to diminish it, diminish it, but was just a punch one time, you know, it can be the, that's the exact same statute we have for somebody who's tortured versus a one-time um, punch. And, and that's not, that's not giving justice to these victims. Right. Of course, of course. And so how often, you know, I know child abuse is a pervasive issue, but how often do we see that? Um, intersectionality, I guess, between human trafficking victims and the abuse of their children? More often than you'd like. Wow. It's, it's one way that they keep the power and the control over, over the victim of trafficking. So again, as Melissa had indicated earlier, they're master manipulators and they will exploit anything they can to have control over our survivors. So if our survivors of trafficking have children, they're gonna be used. And sometimes it's just being kept away from the parents. Sometimes it's actual abuse. Sometimes it's punishment. If you don't bring in your quota for the night, your child is gonna be the one who suffers for the quota. And I, I know Melissa can tell you the flip side is we see it through the domestic violence uh, power and control as well with the survivors. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, Unfortunately, children present a uh, barrier to to uh, the work that our our victims do, and so they you know they have to be able to remove them from the situation. And so, if they have to remove them, they're going to use them. Um, and so, you know, I I would just echo what Catherine said. Yeah, well, it's really disturbing, <laughs> but it's you know it's it's a reality and it's unfortunate. Um, and I'm I'm really happy we're able to get this information out there so people understand just how this works and how serious an issue it is. Um, and so, uh, Catherine, I believe you mentioned earlier um, that the different, or I don't know if it was Melissa, but you mentioned the, uh, you know, talking to parents and kind of just letting them know, you know, what's going on and so forth. And I know there's a town hall um, <clears throat> in January, I believe um, the date is tentative right now, but I believe it's January 11th. That's that's on the, the books and, may, you know, it may change. But, um, uh, and I know you, you're putting together this town hall to discuss with parents um, 
uh, the, the issue of human trafficking um, in PG County and also emphasize that, you know, human trafficking really, it can happen to anyone, anywhere, um, no matter what socioeconomic uh, status you have, whatever it is, um, and also help parents identify the signs and symptoms in their children, other children, and just kind of keep a lookout just generally and protect our kids. And so can you um, please tell us a little bit more about this town hall and what, you know, PG actually hopes to achieve from this town hall? Sure. So the town hall uh, is actually going to be put on by the Prince George's County State's Attorney's Office. And it, it kind of started as Melissa's brainchild when we were talking back and forth about, quite frankly, the fact that people don't understand that 12 to 14 is that target range and that we have such a large amount of our minors who are trafficked out of their own home. And so when we were saying these are the parts that we are missing the most when it comes to human trafficking and the part that we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to educate the community, to educate our educators um, in the school and to make sure the parents know the signs and symptoms. Because, as I said, they're going to prey on whatever vulnerabilities they can find for our minors and they're going to start at middle school. And, and so the town hall kind of came about from that. And as I said, it, Melissa was going, you know what, we need to get it into the schools and we need to get it to the parents. And we're kind of morphing it a little bit to have a separate breakout for any of our young people as well, who might want to come in and be able to address questions or concerns that they have. And I know um, Melissa has some more uh, hard details. We, we, like I said, the, the date's tentative right now, January 11th is what's on the books but we're trying to make sure we have all of our panel. And so if they can't all make that date, we'll have some changes, but it will be updated on the Prince George's County State's Attorney's Office social media as soon as we have everybody locked in. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think it's a really important event, just like podcasts like this, to get information out there and to let parents ask the questions that they may not know who to ask or be embarrassed to ask. Um, because, you know, we can talk to people, um, and, and Catherine and I do, um, all the time. And we talk to, you know, other people in the other state's attorneys, other uh, investigators, we talk to our community partners. But I think getting the message out to our community, the people who are dealing with this on a daily basis and giving them the tools to be able to um, identify it and know what to do if they've identified it is just so important. And and I think, you know, as a parent myself, um, I think that having you know, having the information um, gives me the confidence to do what I need to do to protect my children. But if I don't have that information, it makes it really difficult. Absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and segue into our next topic of discussion. I personally had a parent express concern to me about seeing something suspicious and not quite knowing what to do with it. Uh, particularly, this parent saw an older man taking pictures of three young girls in a park and to her and from her observation it seemed more like a creepy situation than an actual innocent photo shoot situation um they did not seem like family members he just seemed almost like he was kind of sneaking up on them and just kind of surveilling them and so she didn't quite know what to do in that situation and i know individuals just generally whether or not it's with children uh, have been in similar situations um, and observed things that seem suspicious and didn't quite know what to do with it. Does it rise to the level of something that should be reported? Who should they report to? So can you kind of shed more light on what to do in those situations if we see something suspicious, how to handle it, who to go to, who to talk to, and just generally what to look out for? 
some of the signs and symptoms that you might want to look for are, you know, when you see young children or young girls or boys that were kind of look under the age of 18, they look like they're trading sex for money or food or even shelter. Um, if you see adults traveling with or entering hotel rooms with young girls that they, and they don't appear to be related. Um, if you're at home and you all of a sudden see your child show unexplained expensive gifts and you know that they don't have a job or that you didn't buy it for them, um, you may want to you know, ask some questions uh, if they are online really, really late at night or they go out late at night um, and are engaging in late night activities. Um, if you find multiple cell phones, um, especially ones that you didn't buy them, they start wearing provocative clothing for their ages. Um, those are things that you're going to want to look out for. They're also, you know, if you, you see a tattoo that shows up, um, it may be a branding tattoo. It's something you might want to look into. And so there are a lot of different um kind of signs that you can look out for. And if you see it in the community, you know, we would encourage you to um, to, to weigh something, whether it's the police, um, calling, uh, there are task forces, um, just like we talked about earlier, our Prince George's County Task Force, the Maryland Task Force, in every location across the country that you can e easily Google and get the number that you really have a tip line. Um, you know, there are also some apps, I think, um, red light traffic and the stop app are, are two ones where you can report, you know, information anonymously if you don't want to be um, involved. And so, you know, kind of Google is your best friend. But those are just some of the, some of the resources that we know about that we like to, um, to push out there. And to say, I think apps are great, especially when working with uh, your young people. So there's one app that's called the Lifeboat Act app. And, so that's one that is geared for actually younger people to kind of play the app with their parents and identify mm -hmm. signs and symptoms of trafficking or being recruited for trafficking. So it's a way for them to learn and for the parents to learn with them together. And it's a free download app. So it's one that they can download on any platform. One of my favorites is Traffic Cam and it's traffic like trafficking. So with the CK at the end okay. and it's one that I, I can't stress enough. I have it on my phone. I think everybody should have it on their phone. Mm -hmm. And all you do is anytime you travel and you go to a hotel room, you're going to take a picture of your hotel room. And it goes into this database, which goes to law enforcement who does nothing but try to identify and rescue victims of trafficking. And the way they can do that is by identifying hotel rooms that are in the ads that are being put out for trafficking. And so a lot of chain hotels have similar coloring or similar artwork that hangs. And again, it, it takes nothing from you. It's a free app. You just take a picture of every hotel room that you are in. For Maryland, there's also an app called Be More Safe. So it's B and then M-O-R-E. So I'd like to play on Baltimore Safe. And, oh, okay. and that's one where... Uh, and it's victims of sexual assault, victims of trafficking, and even victims of domestic violence can go and click on and get help. And uh, the other one that I think is great, uh, you know, as I mentioned, professional sports have really taken a clue and realized that their events are increasing trafficking. The uh, commercial drivers industry have really stepped up in a lot of ways mm -hmm. to help with trafficking because they know it happens at train stations, at bus stations um, and airports. So they have um, busing on the lookout, which is one for any uh, commercial driver and uh, truckers against trafficking. There are free apps as well that they can take pictures of any suspicious activity at a bus station or at a uh, while they're at rest stops. 
and they just take the picture, they put in where they are, they don't have to do anything more, but it gets it immediately to the task force in that area to be able to investigate. And just like Melissa said, if you see something suspicious, call the task force. They would rather run down 10 false tips that amount to nothing to find one survivor than to miss a survivor because somebody's afraid to call and put in a tip. Mm -hmm. These are really great and useful apps that I think everyone can benefit from. I, for one, before today did not know about, I think, 95% of these apps. And I think the one that really stuck out to me was the Traffic Cam app on which you can take pictures of every hotel that you visit. And that way it builds a database for law enforcement. I think that's really brilliant. I think that's such a great idea. Um, but if you know you didn't catch the apps that Melissa and Catherine mentioned and also the resources that Melissa mentioned earlier, don't worry about it. Just head on to our website, thechainbreaker.org. All of these resources and apps will be listed there for you. And you can look through them generally, find out more about them and avail yourself of them to the extent that you find necessary. Well, ladies, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on here today. It was just such an interesting conversation. And thank you so much for sharing with us all of this very insightful and useful and really relevant information. I'm sure that our listeners are better informed, feel better equipped, and have been generally enriched by our conversation today. Thank you again. And I look forward very much to having you again on this show very, very soon. Thanks so much, ladies. Thanks Thank so you. It's been a pleasure. You.